Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about some headlines, and then later we're joined by Pastor Alan Jackson. You're listening to The Common everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. I say back because it feels like a month since we've been together live. Then again, I assume maybe somebody was listening to the podcast with the best Mm -hmm. of episodes that our producer has graciously put together. So perhaps it doesn't feel like quite as long for everybody, but you and I were talking a little bit before we went live. It it feels like we got to knock the rust off a little bit, don't we? Oh, completely. It feels like it's been a while. It was a nice break. Uh, but like you said, you and I were talking off air. It was kind of like I, I, you you get in these rhythms as you do the show and certainly feel off rhythm. And I, that feels like we're just preemptively warning people this might be uh, this one might go off the rails here early. But we're we're glad to be back, which I feel like might be an incentive. Actually, someone might be like, hold on. They're not usually off the rails. This is going to be the off the rails episode. <laughs> the day <laughs> I'm I'm pulling over to give all of my attention to the next two hours, which, you know, we'd be encouraged I while you're doing that. You, if you want to find us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram at Common Good Talk or the podcast, if you're coming in and uh, you're really wanting to listen to some of the archive stuff, you can do that wherever you get podcasts and subscribing, rating, reviewing. All of that helps us out a whole bunch. And we're really grateful for all of you who have done that already. That feels familiar. I'm getting back into it already. Okay, so what we've been doing the last, I don't know, half a year or so uh, is taking this very first segment just to kind of touch on a couple of headlines. It's pretty wild, actually, because there's been a number of headlines since we've been off, which is you know a week and a half or whatever, that now maybe are a bit passe. Everyone knows about them. It's just amazing how even when we're off, stuff would kind of come across my newsfeed or whatever, and I think, oh, we should talk about that, and then, you know. Two days later, there's like 17 more things. And you're like, all right, well, exactly. I guess we don't have space for that. But uh, do you want a dealer's choice? You can take a pick of which one you want to do. Yeah, I feel like we need to jump in right uh, at the big news of the day. And that was that call that President Trump had with uh, the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. Raffensperger. Uh, and then on top of that, now we've got the uh, least at least 11 uh, senators, GOP senators who said they're going to object on Wednesday mm-hmm. uh, to the seating of the Electoral College, to the seating or just the reading of the vote totals and basically the last hurdle to Joe Biden uh, becoming the president elect and inauguration day being here just in a couple weeks. I'm just struggling with this, man. Like you and I feel like before Christmas, before we went off, we did a lot of like, yeah, you know, let it play out. A lot of both sides of this. That This just feels like it's getting out of control now. Yeah. And and I again, it's weird when you don't have a place to talk about it. Like there were so many moments through this story over the last couple of weeks uh, where you just it just left my head just kind of like hurting. Like I, my head was scratching <laughs> and I wanted somebody to talk to and be like, what are we doing here? Because. Even something as simple yesterday when there were new uh, new uh, House uh, House of Representatives people put in inaugurated. I don't know what the seated uh, from the states that they're saying had nefarious elections. Like, why are we seating those people in the first place? I don't understand. And now these other people coming out and, and saying, like, yeah, we need to hold this commission and stuff. And then on top of it, kind of the cherry on top was like the borderline criminal kind of phone call last night where it was you know, kind of will need to find votes. And it just felt like such a dirty thing. And now the Georgia secretary of state, he was recording the phone call and let it out. It's like a, you know, it's kind of like a bad John Grisham novel right now. And you're just like, I, I have some, well, you know, worry as to like, what are the next 48 hours, you know, 48 hours, two weeks or whatever going to look like this has just gotten out of control, man. 
Is there a uh, a flip to this side? Like, could you play devil's advocate and argue the side that you don't feel right now? I'm having trouble. I've always kind of been, you and I both have been like, let's be fair. Let's, and I'm having trouble with it. Like I watched the press conference with the election guy from Georgia today. And he was basically went point by point as to how everything uh, was uh, done well. And it's been secure. And I, I don't know, I, I, I'm not even saying that I'm excited about this next administration that's coming, but I don't think it takes very hard to look at the facts right now and be like, whether you're happy about it or not, uh, the election was pretty legit and and we kind of have to move on. I know there's people really angry at me even for saying that. But sure. as I watched a lot of this stuff over the last couple of weeks and have been reading stuff, I'm just like, what are we doing? Like, like it, it just feels like there's just uh, I, I likened it to one of my kids the other day this way. Like uh, I, my son and I watched a lot of football yesterday. And, you know, when you watch football, you complain about the referees but you never get to the end of the game and be like, we singularly lost because the referees cheated. And now we have to replay the game. Like eventually you go, you know what? That's the game and, and it's over and I'm not happy about it. Like I, it just feels so. It, yeah. So usually I'm, I'm other side of the coin guy trying to see it. Maybe you could tell me where I'm wrong. I just don't see another side right now. And now I'm like more about like, can we just try to make the best of it and like try to heal up as a nation right now? And, and a lot of my, uh, you know, a lot of friends of mine who are also Christ followers with, with lots of conspiracy, like feels like the conspiracy theories are getting crazier and crazier right now. And you and I have talked a lot about conspiracy theories. So I don't know. I have a lot to say about this from the last two weeks, but I'm, <laughs> I'm really uh, frustrated and sad and, and kind of disturbed by what I see going on. And like I said, I'm not even necessarily excited for the next administration that's going to start. That's not even what this is about. Sure. It's just kind of about what's happening to kind of the fabric of our democracy at the moment. And it's going to be fine. I'm not one of these people who's like, Oh, it's going to be altered forever, but man, it just feels really dark and messy right now. Well, yeah, we'd love to know what you think. This is posted up at our Facebook page. We know that uh, our audience has a diverse set of opinions and perspectives, and that's a great place to kind of weigh in and share some of your thoughts. I know we got four other headlines here. I'd love for us to at least touch on. Uh, Do you want to, you want to take the next one? I found this one really sad. The Louisiana congressman-elect Luke Letlow, only the age of 41, died of COVID-19. He was the first member of Congress uh, to die. That was like about a week ago while we were on our break. And, you know, again, you could take the dark side where all the people were like going on Twitter. Well, he said this. He said, it's just sad. He has two little kids. Yeah. You know, he was in the hospital with COVID. Everything seemed to be going well. And then they said a blood clot caused a heart attack. It, a, reminds us that COVID still a big deal. But B, I just found myself really uh, uh, just sad when I watched the stories about him and his family. He was days away from his getting seated in his dream job in the House of Representatives representing Louisiana. And uh, again, it showed some of the dark side of social media and some of the reaction to it. But I, I don't have much more to say, except it was just a sad story. Yeah, I totally agree. Here's, here's another one that we've tackled uh, a couple of different ways. So Sean Foyt, he's been doing these, what do we call them, revival worship events, typically in some sort of city center space. There's a, an article over at Religion News, L.A.'s Skid Row doesn't need Sean Foyt's, quote, revival. If Foyt really cared about the people on Skid Row, he would support efforts to contain the virus instead of holding a maskless concert in a tent city. What's going on in this one? Yeah, this one was interesting. He really had an interesting back and forth going on with Shane Claiborne yeah. uh, over Twitter over the last couple of days. But again, Sean Foyt, he's going to L.A. Skid Row, a 54-block area 
excuse me, of downtown L.A. that has one of the highest rates of homelessness uh, and kind of, like he said, a revival, bringing Jesus to the streets of L.A., he said. And uh, this has been met some people very excited uh, and a lot of people, including pastors on Skid Row, saying that you're just bringing COVID. And if you really cared, you'd be here more. Uh, This is just a publicity stunt. And then you saw you could Google Sean Foyt and Shane Claiborne going back and forth about it. Uh, but yeah, Sean Foyt continues to believe strongly in this and continues to do these, uh, yeah. even against, or maybe because of fueled by even some of the, uh, people saying, please don't do this anymore. Yeah. Okay. So last but not least McConnell houses, $2,000 stimulus checks are quote socialism for rich. What's going on here? Yeah. Again, Senate majority leader, Mitch McConnell, it said he dubbed the efforts of direct $2,000 payments as socialism for the rich, which then Bernie Sanders went onto the floor of, uh, of the Senate and said, no, do you want to see socialism for the rich? And he began holding up uh, the various businesses that are getting, uh, you know, tax, right. You know, Amazon and other things that are getting tax breaks. Uh, And so it just is this whole, and I don't even know what I think about it, but it's the whole uh, are, is the relief package going to be $600, going to be $2,000? President Trump said it should be $2,000, but Mitch McConnell's really dug in his heels. Uh, it is just a reminder, again, though, that some relief is needed. People are hurting out there. Restaurants are closing. Everything, you know, things are still are just still dark for many people. They're, they're really losing jobs, losing money. And so hopefully the politics can get kind of worked out here. Uh, and and uh, some relief can at least be shown to some of the, to the many people in our country who need it right now. Well, this was a real downer of a first segment, Brian. Who's, yeah, who's idea was it? My goodness. How about we take a right turn in the next segment? Then out of the Gospel Coalition, Megan Hill writes a word of hope for those missing church. That's coming up next year on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. As I mentioned before the break. First segment was pretty heavy. You know, we've been doing some headlines and a lot of the headlines right now are kind of heavy. So I wanted to Mm -hmm. take a bit of a turn and talk a little bit about hope. Megan Hill over the Gospel Coalition. This was on Christmas Eve that it was published. A word of hope for those missing church. You want to get us into it? I do. I thought this was really well written. She says, I miss my church. Man, isn't that a line for a lot of us? The members of our congregation still exchange texts, each other over Zoom, lift one another up in prayer. Some of us are even able to gather on Sundays masked and distanced around two different rooms, but many are not. Those in the church building notice beloved saints' habitual seats sitting empty. Those in front of the live stream wish they could fill them. And Man, that's a well-written paragraph right there because I really think that encapsulates how a lot of people are feeling. Like even my church, you and I have talked about this many times. Uh, we, we are talking about, uh, in our church, having, uh, 50 people masked separate, but you're still very cognizant of who's not there and wishing they were there. And so she says, whether in person or at home, we each miss hearty congress, uh, congregational singing, greeting one another with hugs and post-worship conversations. Church in a pandemic just doesn't feel the same. And so now she's going to point us to three things uh, during these unusual days, she says, I turned to one of the Bible's stranger books, Revelation. In the opening chapter, the Apostle John describes his own unprecedented situation. To quarantine Christians, it will sound a little familiar. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. And so she goes on to say, these words and the rest of John's heavenly, heavenly vision give me three reasons of hope 
when I'm missing church. So we'll go through those three, but don't you think she did a really good job here at kind of encapsulating kind of the ache, even for people that are meeting a little bit right now, kind of uh, wherever your church is at, kind of that ache of, oh, there's so many things about church that I just miss so much. Yeah, I think she does a good job. And I think the angle of revelation is interesting. I haven't heard or seen a lot of people speaking to this issue specifically from revelation. So anytime, you know, as a writer or preacher, you see that, you're like, oh, all right, I'm suspicious and curious. That's always that's always interesting when someone's like, hey, have you considered <laughs> this text for this present moment? You're like, nope, not really. So you mentioned the three reasons or the three things, uh, three reasons mm-hmm. for hope when she's missing church. The first one, in exile, we may feel isolated, but we are not alone. John identifies himself as, quote, brother and partner in tribulation, Revelation 1.9. He was physically separated from the church, sentenced to exile on a remote island, but he affirmed his fundamental connection to God's people, writing to churches who were also scattered and oppressed. John reminded them that they were all united, quote, in the patient endurance that is in Jesus. I think that's a really important, again, I know that, like you said, people are experiencing varying degrees of gathering or not gathering, but she goes on to say, take heart, you may be locked down, but you're not alone. Christ remembers your isolation. He speaks to you by his word. He dwells in you by his spirit, and he joins you to his people, whether you are physically together or apart. Mm -hmm. I think that may seem obvious to some people and maybe new information for others. Either way, I think that's a really important thing to hold on to because I don't know that a week has gone by since March that I've not talked with somebody who's Mm -hmm. who's really feeling like the crushing weight of isolation, not being able to be with, with people. On, uh, especially on a, on a Sunday morning kind of space. And like you said, you know, people are meeting or not meeting to various degrees, but I think that's a, a really important reminder right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Number two, she says, in exile, worship is still our priority. Uh, she says, in the cartoons, island exiles often busy themselves scratching a daily tally on the trunk of the nearest palm tree. But John's existence on Patmos was not spent merely marking time. Instead, he writes, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Banished to a remote island, John still made worship his highest priority. He couldn't be at church, but he could still make the church's calling his own. Mm. That's fascinating. So kind of making the connection, she says, in a pandemic, it may be hard to remember what day it is, but worship is still our greatest privilege. Like John, we are not just marking time until our exile is over. We redeem our days, especially the Lord's day in worship. I think that's one's great. We often have talked about, right, over the last couple of months, church is not just a building. It's not just a, a set time. And this idea that we still engage in worship, we still connect together. And especially, she's saying, on this Sunday morning time on the Lord's Day, that we could still be together, even though it looks different. Uh, man, this is good. This is good. Just like John did on the island saying, I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. Yeah, I, I find that the days between Christmas and New Year's are already hard to keep straight. So you add yes. a quarantine on top of that and you're like, Oof, I don't know. There are certain days that I'm like, I might be one or two days off if I had to guess right now. And that's that can be pretty, yes. pretty disorienting. <laughs> but I, again, Revelation one here, I don't I don't know that I've I've really heard much preaching or read much writing about the idea that even though he was banished to a remote island, he still made worship a priority. I think I think that's yeah. super important. Number three. It says, in exile, we cling to the hope of heaven. As John worshiped, the Lord gave him hope. The rest of Revelation is a vision of the fulfillment of all things, of Jesus revealed in glory and God's people finally and completely gathered. It was meant to strengthen John's heart and the heart of the churches. It meant, it's meant to strengthen our hearts, too. In the midst of this revelation, Christ spoke tenderly to John from his throne in heaven. 
The Lord said three words, come up here, Revelation 4.1. Come, John, come and join the heavenly worship by ourselves in our homes or scattered around a cavernous church building. We may feel like we are worshiping in isolation, but we are not. Every week, our earthly worship joins the saints and angels in heaven in heavenly worship, Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. We also look forward to that day when we will be physically gathered with the great multitude that no one could number, Revelation 7, 9. As we endure exile today, we meditate with hope on the church's glorious future. Brother, sister, hear the voice of Jesus calling you. Come up mm-hmm. here. I, I'm, I'm with you, man. That's a, a perspective I've not seen a lot of, but one that I think is really important, regardless of whether or not your church is meeting or sort of meeting or not meeting at all. I, I think we're all experiencing some level of weirdness and some level of grief and some level of questioning and feeling unsure and like, you know, like she's saying, isolation or exile. Those are three, I think, important things to hold on to, not just for like the next week or two, but for probably a much longer time than that. Yeah, I tried to tell our people at the beginning of our service yesterday, being our our worship time. uh, I'm not sure I did it well, but over the first just couple minutes of opening the service, uh, I tried to say, hey, so much of us right now, so much is about what we've lost and what we're missing. And, And I just tried to encourage people to engage, engage with one another, engage in worship, whether you're here in the building or probably watching online, that that the real temptation right now with our churches could just be to, you know, just kind of drift away or to disconnect and that we need this time to be engaged. And for us as pastors to figure out ways to help people engage. I think this is a good call because just because John was exiled to the Island of Patmos, he didn't, you know, disconnect from the church. Uh, He didn't disconnect from God. And uh, I think this call right here, Jesus calling a come up here, a a well-written article here at the Gospel Coalition by Megan Hill. Yeah, totally agree. And like always, that's up on our Facebook page. If you want to read more, I know sometimes hearing it is way different than actually reading it. So that is up on our Facebook page as well on our Twitter account. And I highly encourage you to uh, check it out. Let us know what you think. Coming up next, though, we're really excited. We have a new partner of the show here on the station, Alan Jackson Ministries, Monday through Friday, every Monday through Friday at 6 a.m. right here at AM 1160. is a wonderful pastor and author out of Tennessee. He's going to join us coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us. And we're excited to be joined by this segment by Pastor Alan Jackson. He has a show through Alan Jackson Ministries that is weekdays at 6 a.m. here on AM 1160 that we couldn't be more thrilled about. Let me introduce him. Uh, Alan is uh, passionate about helping people become more fully devoted followers of Jesus uh, he served World Outreach Church since 1981, becoming their senior pastor in 1989. Uh, and under his leadership, their congregation has grown to 15,000 people. And then through Alan Jackson Ministries, his message reaches across the globe through television, radio, uh, Sirius XM radio podcast, everything you can think of. Uh, and again, we're excited that you're going to be able to hear Alan weekdays at 6 a.m. here on AM 1160 right here in the Chicago land. Well, that was a lot there, Pastor Jackson, but thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, I'm tired after you read that. I'm working too hard. <laughs> Good to be with you, Brian and Ian. It is it is our pleasure. We're thrilled to have you not only on our show, but also a, a brother on the station to be with us here. Uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about World Outreach Church through which that you've served, it said here now, for over 30 years? We're in Murfreesboro. It's a suburb of Nashville. 
And my father actually brought the family here when I was a boy. He's a veterinarian, and he came here for the walking horses. And they had a Bible study in their home, and it kept growing, and they wouldn't fit anybody's home, and that's really what the church was birthed from. So here we are a few years later with a few more people still telling the good news about Jesus and how he changes lives. Yeah, That's fascinating. Now, I know that you've really traveled the world, not only preaching and teaching, but also training other pastors. Brian and I are both pastors, so I'm always interested in what training looks like at a, at a global scale. We know that, you know, we're a highly globalized world now. What's it like for, you know, now looking over your shoulder three decades to have trained pastors in all different types of countries around the world? Well, I have a, a passion for the church. You know, once I, my life changed when I realized when Jesus said that he would build his church. And I really said to the Lord, if there's any way I can help with that, I'll give my life to it. And at that time, I had no imagination of a large church. Our church is about people and helping people find the reality of Jesus and be transformed by his heart. And so it started here. And as we started to learn lessons about how to facilitate that, then God has just continued to open doors in different nations and uh, not so much on short-term missions, but we tried to find places where we could have long-term relationships within a with the emerging body of Christ. And so I studied in Hebrew University in Jerusalem. So Israel's been a part of that story. Uh, Africa and East Africa and Southern Africa have been a big part of that story. Some places in Russia. You know, it, and it really isn't that different. People are the same. We may speak a different language, and our, our mother's yeah. cooking re- favorite recipes may be a little different. But the gospel and our need <laughs> for the change of our heart is the same, no matter the accent with which we speak or um, our height. And so... That that really isn't that different. It's, it's more about giving pastors a vision that they can make an impact. And I think the biggest yeah. challenge we face in churches is low morale. I think mm-hmm. our people have quietly almost given up the hope that there's really any meaningful change available, and they know the routine of church. And I feel like a primary assignment we have as leaders is to say to them, the gospel is transformational, whether you're a brand-new believer or you're a veteran of 20 years in a congregation. And, and that message brings hope, whether it's in a small community in Tennessee or in a, a village in Africa. The, the gospel yeah. is universal, and there's such freedom in that. Yeah. And I'm just curious, what's it done to your own faith as you travel the world and you've seen God at work, like you said, in Africa and Israel and the United States? What does that do to your own faith as you see the gospel spreading throughout the globe? Well, I think first and foremost, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of thankfulness at the goodness and the grace of God, because circumstances that I had nothing to do with, the location of my birth brought to me a set of liberties and freedoms that have presented me with kingdom opportunities that are unique in all of the world. You know, I went with a a team to the Amazon region, and I met people who, you know, their lives are defined by about a 20-mile square radius. And I thought, God, but for your grace, I would have been here. And so there's really no room for arrogance or pride. It's not what we've accomplished. God placed us in a place and has given us some talents and some opportunities. But we'll be held accountable for that. So I think we've got to to find a new boldness and a new courage with the gospel. I I think the American church in 2020 was awakened a bit Mm -hmm. from a slumber of comfort and convenience. And we've realized that our assignment has to be more than our convenience. And being able to park close to the door and sit in my favorite pew we have to have a passion for, for sharing the gospel in our community and wherever else the Lord opens a door. So I think my greatest takeaway is I'm just grateful. God's been really good to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and as we said, you have a show 
That is weekdays here at 6 a.m. right here on AM 1160, Alan Jackson Ministries. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the show? As people tune in, what can they expect? Maybe your teaching style, or what could they expect from that time that they tune into your show? Well, that, that's we're excited to be a part of the Chicagoland area and what God's doing yeah. there. Uh, I try to visit Chicago in the summer. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> Good but I pray for you all in the winter months that you'll get saved and you'll move south where the real Christians live. <laughs> No, but what, the, the show is really built out of what we do with the congregation here. Uh, when COVID started, we started doing three unique services a week because we felt like we needed a God perspective with a little more regularity. And we've taken those broadcasts and, and turned them into real time. So you'll be, it's like you're sitting in our congregation with us on a weekly basis talking about what God's doing in our nation and in our world. We, we need the perspective that God brings to us. So it's biblically centered, but we're not doing Bible study for the sake of Bible study. We're trying to take the Bible and and let it be the filter through which we understand the events that are unfolding in our daily news reports. And that's not so simple these days because the news reports seem to be more about propaganda and manipulation than they do truth. So the Word of God has become this bright light of truth that is a beacon for all of us. So we're just trying to figure out what it means to honor God and live as a Christ follower in the midst of this tumultuous change we're all walking through. Absolutely. And with that in mind, before we let you go, I want to make sure to touch on your new book. You've got a new book called God Bless America Again. Uh, Why don't you tell us not only where can we find that book, but more importantly, uh, what's kind of the heartbeat behind that book? What's kind of the message of God Bless America Again? All right. Well, it's easy to find if you just go to the website, alanjackson.com, or if you just Google Pastor Alan Jackson, Rabbi Google will help you find it. (laughs) But the, the message is really simple. God has blessed our nation over and over and over again. Before we were a nation, the founding circumstances, the people that came here, William Bradford and the separatists, uh, you can under, one way of understanding American history is through the revivals and awakenings we've had. I mean, in Chicago with Moody and the story around his life and what emerged after his life is one of those chapters. And we're simply saying, God, we need that kind of a renewal and awakening again. I don't think the problem facing the church in America or the challenges that we face as a nation are going to be resolved by the wicked repenting. I believe they'll be resolved by the faithful gaining a new passion for the Lord. If the church will wake up and cooperate with the Lord in a new way, I think we'll see the glory of the Lord in ways we've never seen it. That's awesome. Well, Pastor Alan Jackson, we're excited to have you on the team again. Alan Jackson Ministries, you could hear it weekdays at 6 a.m. right here on AM 1160. Again, that's Alan Jackson Ministries. You can also find more from Pastor Alan Jackson at alanjackson.com. That's alanjackson.com. Alan, thanks so much. It was a great time having you on. We'll have you on again sometime. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate what you and Ian are doing. Bless you. It's our pleasure, and thanks for joining us. Well, you're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are so stinking glad that you're here. We took a little bit of time off. Was it How long was it? It wasn't a full 10, two weeks, 10 days? That's a good question. I just know our last last show was the... uh, what do we call it? Christmas Eve Eve. Is that right? And Christmas, so, yeah, Christmas Adam. One. Sure. Yeah. Christmas Adam. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, that was our last one. So it's been it's been a little while. <laughs> that's your answer. It's been a, a little while. We'll we're not going to do the math. Um, nope. it, and uh, I don't I'm not super proud of this segment name, but I'm calling this uh, the tweet suite. And uh, I like it every once in a while. We'll just find a whole slew of tweets. We're like, man, I don't know if that's a whole segment, but it's certainly that's kind of the. 
beauty and the frustration with Twitters. There's a, you know, a limited character count. So sometimes you'll see something you're like, oh, all right, that's intriguing. Other times you see something you're like, that's maybe too reductionistic to be helpful. You know, anyone Mm -hmm. who's been on Twitter, Mm -hmm. you've probably seen the full gamut of things. But just a couple in here that I thought were interesting that I I could be way wrong. But I anticipate we'll have plenty to say. Do you want to I'll let you choose (laughs) which of the two do you want to tackle first? I want to start with the one that was kind of flying around Twitter. It's by a guy by the name of Jesse Kelly. Okay. Uh, and I will uh, – you, one thing we always have to remember with things like Twitter and social media is people are trying to be heard. They're trying to stand kind of – and so sometimes it causes them to say just crazy stuff. Uh, Jesse Kelly is the host of I'm Right on uh, the first, it says, host of a nationally syndicated Jesse Kelly show. Uh, also an anti-communist, which he puts into his bio. Uh, And so Jesse Kelly wrote this in response to somebody who was talking about removing religion from the governing principles. And there's this age old conversation, right, about what role does religion uh, play in politics and this and that. And Jesse Kelly, he wrote this. And when I read this, my first thought was, I wonder what Ian thinks about this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh no. Oh, dear. Jesse Kelly wrote this to So the answer to what somebody had said about removing religion, he wrote false. And then he goes on to say. Uh, it's not when he wrote false. I hear that in Dwight Schrute voice, right? False. False. <laughs> Bears beat Battlefield Galactica. False. Uh, he says it's not the Christian. It's not the Christianity that's the problem. It's America's soft, watered down quote turn the other cheek version of it. Biblical men were warriors. Today, America's pastors will lecture you about, quote, white privilege from the pulpit. And then he adds his commentary, barf. And so, uh, Ian, you're one of America's pastors uh, <laughs> as Amer- as one of America's pastors. Uh, what did you th- I-, I know what you think, but I'll let you talk about it. What was your first reaction when you read this? Uh, and what is either helpful or more likely dangerous about this thought that Jesse Kelly here had? Well, I'm I'm wearing a cardigan right now, Brian. So I feel like a real warrior, anyway. So I'm I feel I feel uniquely poised to weigh in on this conversation. Uh, Tyler Huckabee responded. He said, "Yeah, sick of it. Where did Christians get that whole quote turn the other cheek thing from, anyway?" Exactly. I was like, okay, there's a there's a bunch of those types of comments. And um, what's weird is because if you scroll a little further, you have Ben Shapiro who says, "Amen," and then he kind of unpacks his reason why. Uh, so you, again, it's it's Twitter. So there's a lot there's a there's a lot to be said about the diversity of where people are coming from and their own kind of think tanks and confirmation biases and echo chambers. Blah 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 blah. What I will say is, if you're gonna if you're gonna quote something Jesus said as a part of the problem with Christianity, you yeah. might want to think twice before hitting post. That's all I'm going to, that's all I really want to say. (laughs) I'm not saying that there isn't a need in some context in some circles to like, to, to call our our men to be men of courage where where maybe they haven't been. Um, And I'm not saying that every church or no church has made the mistake of not watering certain things down, certain aspects that we talk about that on the show a lot, actually certain things that have been, watered down but the it's the, really the sentence america's soft watered down quote turn the other cheek version of right. it it meaning christianity, christianity. <laughs> <laughs> that I, is a problem <laughs> it's a it's a real problem man and the the older i get the more i'm convinced if it if it doesn't look like jesus 
mm-hmm. at, at least at least give it pause. There's and yeah. obviously there's so much in the Old Testament that at first blush you're like, well, that doesn't look like Jesus at all. I'm like, in my in my mind, Je- Jesus wins. Like you, that's start that you want to know what God looks like. Look at Jesus. You want to know what God cares about? Look at Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like that's that needs to be our starting point. He is the perfect word of God. That is that is who Jesus is. And so for us to like quite literally take words he said and say, this is part of the problem. <laughs> You're like, well, okay, let's all calm down for a second and hit pause. Yeah. And I've said too much. Brian, what do you think of this tweet? I think that's a fabulous way to put it, man. Like if, if you're actually quoting Jesus's words as the problem, uh, I think you say that very well. Hit pause and ask yourself, what is it that I'm getting wrong here? <laughs> right. Because if, if I'm saying Jesus's words are the problem, he's not wrong that biblical men, that there's men in the Bible who are more warriors. Uh, like you said, that there's a time to, uh, you know, Jesus flip tables and all of this sure. stuff. But, but to say turn the other cheek version of Christianity is the problem uh, does speak to a uh, at at our most gracious uh, <laughs> reckoning of it, just a confusion as to what Christianity is. Uh, and at its worth, worst, just trying to change what it is, because Jesus spoke of turning the other cheek. And so I do want to ha- quickly get to the one from Rich Velotis, who sure. we've had on the show. Um, we love reading Rich Velotis' stuff. And I found this just to be uh, a great tweet that he wrote. Rich wrote this. He's a pastor in Queens, New York, and author the also the author of A Deeply Formed Life. He wrote, much of divisions within the church are not rooted in doctrinal purity, but in the inability to listen to one another with a non-anxious presence. Hmm. The deep need for our communities is to train people to resist reactivity and cultivate curiosity in the bond of Christ's love. Ian, there's a lot there. What do you think Rich is trying to say there? And, And what do you think about his message there? I don't know, man. It's pretty soft and watered down, if you ask me. I don't think. <laughs> nah, just turned it down. I shouldn't have. I can't. Yeah, just to say it out loud. Um, I'm I'm reading Deep Reformed Life right now as my my first book Are in you? 2021, and it is fantastic. Yeah, I, I think. Ah, I wish we had more time. Maybe we'll have to tackle this idea, or let's just have him back on the show. Much of the division within the yep. church are not rooted in doctrinal purity, but in the inability to listen to another with a non-anxious presence. That to me is almost a summary of like what our dream for this show has been. How can we create a space mm-hmm. where people can actually listen to other perspectives, can actually engage in a dialogue, not with the, the motive or intent to like own them or, you know, offer some kind of mic drop moment in the Twitter comments, but right. to actually to, I don't to, to engage deeply. And I think what he says in the second half, it requires training like it is yes. it's not it's more that it's got to be more than just a sermon i'm like hey everyone be nice to each other okay all right be nice now go and do likewise be blessed i think i think it does require like he's saying it's training it requires curiosity and i think he ends it perfectly i don't i don't mean to just like dissect his tweet as my answer but <laughs> no all true. of that to be undergirded by love and not just because people also know when they're projects like oh you're just biting your tongue because mm-hmm. you're like studying me like i'm in a zoo like no no, no it's all undergirded by love and i think I think it's a really, it's an important, it sounds silly to say, it's an important tweet though. I don't know. I want to give you a yeah. chance to respond. I would just say what you point out at the end, the number of active, like really intentional words there, like train, resist, cultivate, these kind of things take work, right? They take yes, thought right. and they take, they don't just happen, like you said, by preaching one sermon and saying, now go and do likewise. Right, uh, right. But that there's this training, this resisting, this cultivating, it reminds us again, that if we want to grow in these things that he's talking about, 
in our communities and being bonded in Christ's love, it's going to take work, especially in this culture that we are a part of uh, right now that's deeply divisive and uh, people are not non-anxious and uh, these are not listening to each other. I think his words there, I think, are chosen very intentionally. Uh, these these words, like I said, like resist and cultivate and train. I think those active words are really important. Yep, I totally agree, man. Let's let's continue this uh, church train a little bit. Coming up next, Rick Warren made some comments, and he said this, that COVID-19 has actually revealed a fundamental weakness in the church. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, Rick Warren made some comments about COVID and the church. And then later we're joined by Sherry Banke of the Together Conference. You're listening to The Common Good. everyone welcome back to the common good my name is ian simpkins along with brian from one of the one of the guys that this might be would you put this in our top five best interviews of the history of the show is the rick warren interview i mean outside of our studio there is only one picture of an interview we have done with the with the person we interviewed that's with rick warren yeah this was a total highlight for me and for you i think that uh was that like a year ago that's this was a, a lot of fun to hang out with rick warren that day and he wasn't he was just incredibly gracious and so very fun. kind and I, I i know that a lot of people will you know have issues with his theology or politics or whatever just to say it bluntly he was great he was he was a great gracious guest uh, i thought he had a lot of wisdom a lot of vulnerability and i found this interesting over at christian post covid19 has revealed a fundamental weakness in the church this is by uh leah what clet and um i think that this this will be this will surprise some of you but i think it's I think it's a helpful insight from someone who's been in ministry as long as as long as Rick has. You want to get us into it? Yeah, he says this uh, COVID revealed a fundamental weakness uh, in the church. Most churches only have one purpose. That is worship. And if you take worship away, you've got nothing. They're in a hurry to get back to worship because that's all they've got. But the 20,000 member Saddleback Church is not uh, built on one purpose, but on five, Warren explained. You take one circle out, we still have four other circles. We've got ministry going on. We've got mission going on. We've got fellowship going on. We've got discipleship going on. Those all stand on their own. As a result, removing worship didn't shut the church down. In fact, uh, Saddleback's seen over 16,000 people come to Christ since That is unbelievable. 16,000 wow. people come to Christ since March. <laughs> and it's continuing to see about 80 new conversions a day. He said, we're in revival. When the pandemic first hit, their leadership at Saddleback looked around, he said, and made a list of all the different problems that COVID was creating. For instance, the first one was food. Uh, now the church is the largest food distributor in Southern California, having served over wow. three and a half million pounds of food to over 300,000 uh, families. We teach our people wow. that every member of the church is a minister. Everybody's a missionary. You're a witness. Those people already know how to share their faith. When people would pull up, they talk to them about the Lord. So I'm going to pause it. There's a lot more going on that we'll even get into. Uh, but what obviously when Rick Warren refers to worship, he's referring to the worship gathering. Like I think we can uh, read into that. He's not saying, you know, worship as a lifestyle. He's talking about the Sunday morning gathering. Uh, and Rick Warren is saying that what uh, COVID has shown is the fundamental weakness that way too many churches, in his opinion, are solely focused on the Sunday morning worship gathering. What do you think about his assessment there? 
Well, okay. So a couple of things I want to say. One, I know that some people might be tempted to dismiss this because like, well, my church isn't anywhere near 20,000, so we can't make mm-hmm. that kind of a dent. I, I read them, or I have you read them, I guess, because one, it is worth celebrating. Like I think, I think no matter how you slice it, that's, that's pretty remarkable. The work that God seems to be doing through them in their church. Uh, but what you said towards the beginning there, when he, when he talks about taking one circle out, still having four other circles, I I think that's a helpful way to talk about it. I don't know that I know a single church that only focuses right. on the Sunday morning gathering. I think that might not totally be a fair caricature. I, I don't know that. Have you? Can you think of a, a pastor or a church you remember like, no. no, we're only interested in the Sunday morning gathering and nothing else. Like most have some vision of, what's he say, fellowship, discipleship, mm-hmm. ministry, mission. Um, but I do think he makes a fair point that it's often – maybe arguably disproportionate like yeah yeah we got these other four things but like you know worship is the big circle that's the thing where we put i mean even think about it's not it's not the only litmus test but if you're really honest about what you value in the church you can look at how much money you spend on certain things like that's probably a tool to, at our disposal like all right well if you care about all of these things how, do is there a disproportionate amount of energy and resources right in the Sunday morning event as compared to mission, ministry, discipleship, fellowship. And in most cases, that's usually somewhat true. And I think you could make some cases for why that is, you know, in a lot of ways the Sunday morning is what helps kind of point people to those other expressions to kind of deepen their walk in faith. So therefore you could make a case for it. But I think, I mean, even at community, you know, we've launched community cares. It used to be community 412. We've just actually merged that into community cares because we saw that as like, such an integral part of what the Lord was doing in our own community yeah. and meeting the needs of people in our neighborhoods and in our cities. So we we're certainly seeing that shift and that pivot. And um, yeah, I'd be, I'd be curious to know what, what you think of what he said here. Yeah. I actually think that one of the struggles, especially for smaller and medium sized churches that maybe uh, I think of my own church where we weren't doing online church before COVID uh, right. in a weird way, COVID has actually forced some churches to become more focused on Sunday morning because you're learning as you go. And so yeah. uh, his his point about them being too singularly focused on worship, I actually feel like uh, for a lot of people, a lot of pastors, they've had to become more focused on Sunday morning. And now the question is, can you get away from that and say, okay, right. how are we going to love our community? Because, you know, I, I think of churches like yours who was already killing it on your online experience well before COVID, right? And you had people who that was their focus. Uh, that that it became a little more seamless to other churches going, oh my gosh, we've never thought of having to do this online. How do we do it? What are we going to do? Right. And you're tweaking along the way. But I think Rick Warren's right. I think all too often when we talk about the church, we just talk about Sunday morning. What are you doing on Sunday morning? What does it look, you know? And Sunday morning is a huge important part of the church experience, of the church culture. Uh, sure. But it's not the only one. And so he's saying, hey, we've, been able to take this time to really dive in and dig in. And he goes on later in this article, and you think about what he's saying, living in Southern California versus somebody like John MacArthur in Southern California. Uh, Mm -hmm. And he goes on here to say, we are not being discriminated against. This is a safety issue. The cinemas have closed 650 theaters. Disney laid off 28,000 people. We're not being discriminated against. And so Rick Warren, who in many ways maybe is the most famous pastor there is in our country, if not the most famous, the top five or whatever, saying this is not a discrimination issue. This is a health issue. And he's wanting mm. to call the church 
uh, to kind of get off the Sunday morning train solely and to say, what can we be doing in this time to serve our community, to build into our people? What are the new things that we can birth and how can we be loving and kind of uh, being the hands and feet of Jesus and being missionaries during this time? Yeah, and they quote a couple of other really smart people. So Warren Bird, who who co-wrote Hero Maker with Dave Ferguson, and then a little bit later, Todd Wilson, who's the uh, CEO of Exponential, asking, I think, some really important questions. Part of what Bird is asserting, he's saying that the churches that are doing small groups well, they're likely the ones that are going to be the strongest once we once we kind of pull out of this. And I think I think he's right on. One of the things I used to say on Sunday morning gatherings was that Sunday is the push, not the point mm-hmm. that I and that's not to say that I don't, I love the gathering right. and I miss it deeply, but like this, the goal doesn't end here. Like, oh, we gathered and had a good time or even an inspirational time or, you know, it's, I don't want to, I don't want to in any way dismiss what happens there, but like that's in preparation to go live on mission. I'd be curious to know what our maybe more Orthodox or liturgical brothers and sisters say to like, do, do they, is there some discrepancy there between the purpose of Sunday is, is it held in higher regard in more, high church gatherings do you think like is it are they more likely to see the actual physical gathering as as central i do you have any experience there i, I, I know we're already it's out of just time. anecdotal from people i know it feels like more liturgical churches do uh when i talk to my friend non-denominational friends it's just kind of like i miss it i want to be together <laughs> you know it's that yeah, kind of right. talk. Uh, my more liturgical friends are like, no, this has to get back. We got to get back. And it, so it does feel different to me. It's kind of anecdotal. I don't know that for sure, but it is the sense that I get. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, again, this is one of those that we'd love to know what you think. This is posted up on our Facebook page, uh, The Common Good Radio Show. And we'd love to know what you think. Coming up next, though, I found this article interesting and I found plenty of controversial comments following it. It says COVID-19 is a rich man's virus that the poor will suffer the most. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Howdy doody neighbor, as as we say. <laughs> it sounds weird when you just say it straight like that, like not with the voice or anything. Just howdy doody neighbor. Anyway, before I get into this article, which, again, um, as a reminder, is a bit. I mean, this is from March. Um, March 23rd, 2020, to be exact, says COVID-19 is a rich man's virus that the poor will suffer the most. I'm really curious to know some of Brian's thoughts about that. But before we get into this article, I want to I want to make us aware of some holidays. Are you ready for the holidays? I, I couldn't. be. I mean, if there's one thing I missed over Christmas and New Year's break here was just knowing the holidays. So, yes, I don't even I don't even know if you're being sarcastic or not, but I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to share them anyway. Okay, so this first one's a, a bit of a head scratcher. It's uh, New Year's Day, parenthetically, day four in <laughs> Armenia. <laughs> Happy day four. <laughs> New Year's Day, day four. The more I learn about how other cultures celebrate, by the way, like we we got it all wrong. Like when I was in India, weddings last like a week really? in some circles. Yeah, it's not a one day thing. It's like everyone gets together and they eat and they dance and then they do it again tomorrow. It's awesome. Uh, it's also Independence Day in Myanmar. It's World Braille Day. Uh, it's National Spaghetti Day. I Dare I even spaghetti. ask, Brian? Cool. Okay, of course you do. All right. Yes. Yes. Uh, there's a state. Do you want to guess which state? Today is, oh, it feels like National Arizona Day. <laughs> the fact that you pause to <laughs> pretend like you're doing some kind of math to figure it out every time. Like, ah, okay, if the wind is this and the temperature. No, it's National Missouri Day. You're close. Okay. Um, I'm close. I asked. Oh my I asked you that. I don't. I don't know. 
I asked you that question because it's also National Trivia Day, so I wanted to mm-hmm. get a little trivia in here. And then last but not least, it's also National Thank God It's Monday Day, which I've never heard that phrase before. Whoever thanks God that it's Monday. I would think the only people I know who would thank God it's Monday are the pastors that I know who take off Monday. (laughs) (laughs) So that would be it. I think most people are like, oh, I can't believe it's Monday again. So, yeah. I guess some restaurant workers take Mondays off. Well, sometimes restaurants are golf, golf, sure. All right. Look at us. Without without even trying, we came came up with a, a whole host of names. All right. So with that now behind us, that's the headline. March 23rd, 2020. COVID-19 is a rich man's virus that the poor will suffer the most. Do you want to uh, give us some highlights? Yeah, again, this is at Real Clear Markets. And it's interesting now that you I didn't realize this was written at the beginning of the pandemic, because now you can uh-huh. look and be like, how did it play out? Uh, but this author, and you're going to see if you read this article, there are some shots at, you know, the lefty politicians who are doing this and the this and the that. Sure. Uh, this person did not have a high view of things being shut down. Uh, But I think here's the important article and really the jumping off point. He writes, the poor don't realistically have those backstops, the backstops of savings and vacation houses and whatever else uh, he's talking about uh, earlier. He said their jobs were and are their safety nets. But thanks to an economic shutdown uh, that will not uh, see an income decline as a or the rich will not see an income decline as a consequence of its actions. The poor increasingly don't have jobs. Worse is that with politicians intent on shutting the economy down, it's unlikely that those most capable of creating new work opportunities through investment, uh, he says parenthetically, yes, the rich will do just that. Why invest Mm. in what's not operating? And while consumption is a consequence of economic growth as opposed to a driver, millions of the poor, quote, work for businesses that meet the consumptive needs of individuals. Work is put in quotes simply because millions fewer are working today. And so this idea that we're in the month whatever, month 10 of the COVID-19 pandemic and things are still shut down. I drove uh, my family. We were driving down Butterfield Road the other day uh, and and I looked at the movie theater right there, kind of by the Yorktown Mall and thought to myself, has that movie theater been open in 10 months? (laughs) Has it been open at all? You think of things like that or our restaurants and friends who own restaurants who have had to be closed and then open and then closed again. Uh, His point of this author's point being, hey, there are people uh, for whom COVID-19 is going to cause the most economic suffering or more most life suffering. And again, this is apart from the health, although it does play in. And his point being, uh, it's not the people necessarily who have the backdrops of uh, or the safety nets, but those who are living paycheck to paycheck, those who need the economy open, those who need these jobs. And I do think that has played out. I don't know the answer because I don't think the answer is therefore keep everything wide open. Uh, but uh, we've certainly seen over the last nine, 10 months that especially the people who live, it, who work in the service industries or whose jobs are essential and they can't not work or they can't work from home are definitely owning a lot of the burden of the financial burden or the uh, lifestyle burden, I should say, of of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I saw a couple of other people tweeting or responding. I think it was around this article. I can't remember now. It was a few days ago. Somebody made some comment like, if if it wasn't so convenient for us to remain at home and still purchase things, this quote unquote virus would have been gone months ago. I is, saw that is, one. Yep. You, you did. Okay. So that was something that was actually, okay. It wasn't like a friend of mine then is what? I don't. I wasn't. Okay. So you saw something at least like that though. Like, oh yeah, because we can stream whatever we want. We can Instacart. 
we can mm-hmm. Amazon to our doorstep because all of that's available to us. Um, they quote unquote, they you can fill in whatever blank you think they is mm-hmm. uh, are going to perpetuate this much longer than it actually is needed, which I guess is sort of part and parcel with what some of this article is claiming. And I know that you already said you don't necessarily know what you think the answer is, but how do we, let me ask it this way. How do we reconcile this? So as Christ followers, um, I think I can say this safely. I think we all agree that we need to be concerned with the poor, the marginalized, mm-hmm. the exploit those who are the most vulnerable among us. Okay. So that, I think that's pretty, that seems pretty clear. People, people of Jesus, followers of the way that's, that should matter to us. And if there's even an ounce of truth in this article that people, people of maybe lower socioeconomic standing will be the most affected by this. Um, what, what is a way forward? What are maybe some possible ways forward? We talked a bit about some of what Rick Warren and his church are doing. Talked a bit about community Christian church with community cares and things like that. But are there bigger questions that we should be asking in the midst of all this or things, strategies we should be entertaining? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. I think one on a grand scale, a political scale, I think there's an answer to that question of is there while still prioritizing health and this virus, are there some more common sense approaches we can begin taking that doesn't mass shut everything down or doesn't shut cause businesses to go under or whatever else? Are there things can we can we start thinking of this in a more nuanced way or is that unsafe? I think that conversation uh, needs to happen. Because as you said, as that tweet said, you know what, if if we all didn't have the ability to stream church uh, from home or to order Instacart or do whatever else, what were the choices? If this was 25 years ago, what choices would we have made with our schools and our restaurants and our churches and other things? Uh, I think the government, this, depending on your politics, I think an answer to your question could be this kind of talks about the need for larger relief bill and larger stimulus. I understand there's some of you politically who don't believe that, but I think that's an answer, a uh, a debate that could be had. But then I think you teed up to the Rick Warren article and others that uh, this is an opportunity for the church and those who may in this article be part of the quote unquote wealthy uh, to begin thinking, how can I become even more of the solution to help those people who live paycheck to paycheck, who may, if they lose their job, lose everything, like, what can I do as a church, as a, co- a consortium of churches, uh, whatever else it might be to be part of the solution and kind of bring the relief that so many people desperately need through this pandemic? Yeah, that's well said, man. Again, this is one of those articles that I I feel like people are going to have thoughts about. And uh, believe it or not, we really do encourage that. That's posted up on our Facebook page. What do you think? What do you think about Brian's response? What would you add or take away from this article? What do you suggest? All that's fair game. You can find it on Facebook or Twitter at Common Good Talk. Coming up next, Sherry Benke, who is the event director for the annual Together Marriage and Family Conference. I feel like, man, of all the years we've been doing this, this this is a really important year when our relationships are feeling really strained. We've all been dealing with a lot of stress and grief and tragedy and sorrow. Uh, this conference is coming up in uh, about, about a month, and I think it's going to be a tremendous, tremendous event. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are so glad that you're here. But friends, you are in for a real treat because I think maybe for the third time, my real life friend, Sherry Banky, is on the show. Welcome to the show, Sherry. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. And you're uh, what a welcome. Thank you, by the way. Um, yes, it has been multiple years. And yes, we are real friends. <laughs> That's right. We're cool. Um, I am from, uh, we know each other because we are on staff with one another at Community Christian Church. I've been a member at Community for many years, but on staff for about five years served multiple capacities there. Some people will call me the Swiss army knife. Of <laughs> I'm thinking of myself more as a decathlon, I think where I can just, you know, I can do multiple things, maybe not, you know, exceptionally well in one lane, but I'll run in all those lanes if I have to. Um, <laughs> but I am a small group director at our yellow box location and I am the event director for our together marriage and family conference. Yeah, and Sherry, uh, as we've had you on in the past to talk about the Together for Marriage and Family Conference, it's coming up again. Why don't you tell our listeners about the uh, annual Together Marriage and Family Conference? When's it happening? But more so, uh, what can people expect who attend this? Awesome. Great question. Yes, we are having the annual Together Marriage and Family Conference this year. It's going to be on February 6th. Um, we always have it in the month of February. That seems to be when families don't have a lot of demand on their time, and that still remains consistent, even with COVID times as well. Um, it is a conference that where couples and parents will come together as a community to really invest in their most important relationships. And, and that could be a, a married couple, an engaged couple, somebody who's in a committed relationship. It could be a single parent, um, anybody who wants to invest in those most important relationships. Uh, it was birthed out of this kind of dream and vision uh, to change the world. I love this quote from Mother Teresa. She said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. And I believe that we can change the world if we love our family and love our family well, even if you have dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian most certainly does. So you're, you're in good company yeah. here. Oh, also, Sherry, before I ask my next question, you made a comment about being a Swiss Army knife too. I think you're exceptional at multiple things. So I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead in the name of Jesus, uh, disagree with you. Cause I think, <laughs> I think you have uh, just an exceptional capacity for leadership and teaching and vision behind conferences like this. And I know that like a lot of people, we're having to pivot in some pretty massive ways this year. You know, this is a conference yes. and we used to, you know, gather together in one room and then a bunch of breakout rooms. We know that's not happening. I'd, I'd love to know, give us a peek behind the curtain. What in the world was it like planning something like this in the midst of COVID? Well, you, I tell you what, talk about pivot. I learned that word and utilized <laughs> that maneuver many times. It's funny. I, I was a basketball player in high school. And so like pivoting, that's just what you worked on. Mm -hmm, and I just right. felt like we, we got to do that this year. That's for sure. And we did, we had to pivot. We, I mean, we planned this conference. I, I mean, when we're done in February, we're planning the next year immediately. And mm -hmm. it was very clear early on that we would have to make some pivots, not really sure what that meant, but then ended up making that decision uh, last July to make this a fully online conference. Hmm. And uh, though we are used to gathering in person, and I do think that is just a great way to experience the Together Conference. I mean, it's called Together, for goodness sake. You'd think that we would be together. Right. <laughs> um, but it is going to be online. And here's what I have just uh, grown to love about planning this event is since we've been since those constraints of being in a building have been removed, it has really allowed us to make this conference what we really wanted it to be in the first place. And so it is bigger and it is better than ever before. It gives us access to uh, 
professionals and subject matter experts that we maybe wouldn't have had in the past. It allows people to have all the content. Um, I want to say we have over 30 different breakout sessions that people will have access to when wow. attending in person, you really are limited mm -hmm. to just three. Mm -hmm. We also have it all available online. So once you register for this, not only can you attend it that day, but you can choose your own adventure and you can watch it um, for the next year. You can you know, make a date night out of it. You can have a small group study out of it. You can make your own retreat mm -hmm. with it. So it really just broadens our scope yeah. and just makes hmm. us um, just have the capability of bringing this to every person who wants to participate in yeah, it. Yeah, and Sherry, for That's those awesome. people who are interested, uh, who might be some of the people, some of the teachers, some of the speakers they'll hear from at this conference? Awesome. Great question. Well, we have our <laughs> local favorites, uh, one of them being... Ian Simpkins, he and his wife, Katie, will be leading a breakout session. Uh, our lead pastor, Dave Ferguson, and his wife, Sue, mm -hmm. they um, just are, Dave's a phenomenal communicator, but they've done a great job of raising families, and they have uh, two different breakout sessions that they'll be doing uh, for us as well. But then we have some uh, authors you may be familiar with. Holly Gerth is going to be doing a breakout session for us. Mm -hmm. We have a Les Parrott, who's also going to do a breakout session for us, and um, Pete Scacero. So wow. we have uh, some names that people might be familiar with. And I do want to mention, if I can, particularly for Les Parrott, he has um, a marriage assessment called Better Love. And so mm -hmm. anybody who registers for the conference before January 18th, they will get that marriage assessment as part of the registration that goes along with that breakout session that he's doing. And it's not just a marriage assessment that just kind of says, hey, you know, how are we doing? It's not really a report card as much as it is, hey, here's an action plan to make your relationship better, mm. which I is awesome. That. Sherry, I've actually heard you give the analogy a couple of times, and I think it's spot on because I know that some people will hear about this and they'll think, that's great. I'm going to register right now. Other people might be thinking, eh, my marriage isn't like on the rocks yet or we're not totally crashing and burning. So maybe I'll wait till till next year. And you talk about it being like, no, it's like getting an oil change. Like it's one of the best ways just to maintain before you hit a brick wall or before things come unraveled. Can you talk a little bit more about why conferences like this are so important for us to prioritize? Yes. It prioritizes, especially for our most important relationships. You know, we prioritize the care of our teeth by seeing, you know, the dentist regularly. We prioritize the care of right. our car by getting the oil changed on a regular basis. And our most important relationships are that key thing to invest in them regularly. So we don't find ourselves in the crisis. And I think that's what is really discouraging. And you got, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but today is considered national divorce day. Oh, Oh, wow. The first wow. Monday of every year is considered National Divorce Day. And I think mm. that's what's just so um, convicting for me is I don't want our marriages. I don't want our parents to get into a crisis before they seek help. And really, statistically, that's kind of what we do. Mm. We kind of just plug along until we find ourselves in a crisis and we have to seek professional help or 
worse. You know, people are seeking divorce in this time of year. And mm. man, COVID has been relentless yeah. on our relationship. I tell you yes. that relentless. I mean, so probably in some good ways. Some people are probably thinking, yes, my relationship is better than ever because of this confined time. But other people, man, those stresses are being revealed. Yeah. Right. Mm. And um, and that's what the Together Conference is all about. The Together Conference is absolutely if you're in crisis, you're going to get some tools that you can use immediately to make your relationship better. But for the rest of us, let's invest in those most important relationships. So we don't find ourselves in that crisis to begin with. Let's kind of back upstream a little bit, invest in our relationship, get right. comfortable and normalize investing in our most important relationships. I love it. Great. And Sherry, as we close this out for people, you know, you've sold them. They're like, I want to be a part of this. Where can they go to sign up? How much does it cost? Give everybody all the info they need to know. Awesome. They can go to uh, togetherconference.info. So pretty simple, all in word, togetherconference.info. They can register there. It is $39 for one digital ticket, and that will get you access for um, yourself. If, if you have a spouse you're, or uh, uh, if you're in a committed relationship, you guys can join together. You can even have a watch party and invite your friends over if you feel comfortable doing that in this COVID season as well. Share that link and invite your friends um, who might even not even live in this area, but they can go to togetherconference.info, $39. If they uh, register before the 18th of January, they will get that free Better Love Couples Assessment as well. Yeah. And just to say it out loud, I've, I've attended every year we've done this and it's always, always phenomenal. I cannot encourage you enough. Togetherconference.info, 39 bucks. You could spend 39 bucks on an endless list of things. Why not invest in your most important relationships? Just to say it out loud, Sherry, I'm super grateful for you and your leadership and your vision behind all of this. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure as always. My pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. I don't I don't believe that we've heard from Pippa yet. This is the segment that's going to happen, isn't it? Always. Always the last segment always. of the show. Uh, it's usually Pippa, sometimes Jersey, but it's the most, it's the craziest thing. There's no reason it's the last segment of the show, but it always happens. So be prepared. That's what you think. I think maybe you need to give them more credit. Maybe they're doing it intentionally because they they really want to, want to be a part of the, right, right. They're listening and they're like, okay, how many segments has it been? Okay. And showtime. Here we go. You never know. It could be like a, you know. Like a like a Toy Story situation where the toys are just much yes. more uh, aware of us than we realize. That's I not live a in a comparison. Pixar movie. Anyway. I just live in a Pixar movie. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I've always, I've always. So, what would your what would your Pixar character name be? Oh, I have no idea. Hooded hooded sweatshirt guy. Or... Yes, yes. Uh, by the way, Pixar is it a Pixar movie? That new movie everyone's seeing, Soul. I haven't seen it, but my family watched it and said it was phenomenal. How? Why did you watch it with your family? Why didn't I? I was not home, so I was not able to watch it with oh, them. Okay. They watched it and said it was great. And my wife said, "You're going to watch this movie, and it's going to make its way into a. Uh, it's going to make its way into a uh, sermon, I'm sure." Oh, all right. Well, that'll be interesting. Count, yeah. Let me know. Let me know when you uh, when you watch it. Right after you find out if we can ask Alexa about <laughs> Alexa. Tell me about Soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's that seems likely. Okay, so to close the show, we've we've tackled a number of. Pretty heavy topics today, which is not unlike us, I suppose. But every once in a while, I like to kind of just end. This isn't 
really like a, a benediction of sorts, but like, okay, this felt like a Scott Sauls is someone that we read and reference in the show a lot. I just think he's a great pastor and writer and thinker. And uh, he wrote a blog. This is also on Christmas Eve. We did another article earlier in the show, but it says the essence of Jesus, according to Jesus, what's happening here. Yeah. We, as you know, friend of the show, Scott Sauls out of Nashville, Christ uh, Presbyterian church, I believe, by the way, you and I didn't talk about, We've been off for 10 days or so here. That that uh, Christmas morning explosion in Nashville, that was terrifying. Jeez, uh, always, yeah, sorry to bring up something sad. I just saw Nashville and I thought of that again going, oh, that we haven't right. done a show since then. That was terrifying. terrifying. Uh, but Saul's here. Uh, he writes about the seven I am statements about of Jesus from John's gospel. And he says, and I love how he frames this. These seven statements are an autobiography. Oh, my dog just barked. That is so funny. Uh, these <laughs> seven statements are an autobiography of sorts, as well as a blueprint for how he insists, insists on relating to us and us to him. And so he's going to give us the seven I am statements. I love how he describes them as an autobiography of, store, of sorts. And so he goes through in this blog, the seven I am statements that Jesus says about himself. And as Saul says, he says, I hope you'll see that these are also statements about who you are to him. So let's just work our way through them. I'll, I'll take the first one. It says, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. As the bread of life, Jesus provides the sustenance we need for survival and flourishing. Every bit of food, shelter, and clothing we have received can be traced to his merciful heart and caring hands. Jesus goes even further and becomes our sustenance as he offers his body and blood in the Lord's Supper, shelters us beneath the shadow of his protective, nurturing wings, and clothes us with the beauty of his hard-fought, blood-bought righteousness. Jesus is the bread of life. Yeah, secondly, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. As the one who created and sustains the sun and stars, Jesus illuminates truth, makes beauty, and creates hospital space, hospitable space uh, from an otherwise dark, cold, and personal universe. In the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, he provides us with, quote, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path to help us walk in the grace, truth, and wisdom. Uh, in his own self, Jesus unveils to us what God is like. If we have seen him, we have seen the Father. I, I don't know if you've talked through these I am statements I before, but gosh, oh, I love, I can't wait to do that again sometime, actually, because yeah. it's 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 wonderful to be able to walk through all of these. Absolutely. Jesus said, number three, I am the door of the sheep. This is one of the two I am statements in which Jesus identifies believers as his sheep. The metaphor is not a flattering one. Rather, it's a realistic assessment of our helpless estate. Sheeps are characteristically needy, temperamental, wayward, and vulnerable creatures. Jesus responds to the frail estate of the sheep by offering himself as their gateway to the care, comfort, healing, and guidance they and we sorely need. That's good. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. As the good shepherd, Jesus again offers himself as provider and protector of his sheep. In him, we find rest from our weariness, a balm for our wounds, and the cure for whatever ails us. As the good shepherd, he lays down his very life for us to ensure our care, protection, and flourishing. He is the definition of a servant leader and a heroic self-donating champion. I love that phrase, yes. self-donating champion. That's a, that's a great phrase. Next, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. In his historic and bodily resurrection from the dead, of which over 500 of his contemporaries claim to be eyewitnesses, Jesus demonstrates his power and resolve to conquer death, which is also our greatest fear and enemy. In Jesus, death is put to death, and with it, the spirit of slavery that leads to fear. His resurrection becomes a foretaste of our future, in which there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain, and everything will be made new. This promised future will be without end. 
every day we will feel younger and stronger, wiser and more capable, happier and more satisfied than we did the day before. It will be an abundant life whose chief feature is one of everlasting momentum. Our judgment day having been relocated from the future to the past, our best days are forever ahead of us, never behind us. Our long-term worst case scenario is to become like him because we will see him as he is. Our long-term worst case scenario is resurrection, wholeness, life to the full, and elimination of all guilt, sorrow, and fear. Ooh, that'll preach. All right. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nowhere does Jesus present himself as one way to God, as if there are multiple options and pathways. Rather, he presents himself as the way to God, as the only qualified mediator between a holy God and a sinful humanity. He is the one name given by which we can be saved from the wearing effects of guilt, sorrow, and fear. Jesus, and only Jesus, can provide ultimate refuge from all that is broken and horrid and tragic in the world, in human systems, in other people, and in ourselves. Last one, Jesus said, I am the true vine. As the true vine, Jesus is our life source, the well from whom we draw, our sustaining nourishment and strength. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But with him, we can run against a troop and leap over a wall. Whether living in plenty or in want, in joy or in sorrow, in sickness or in health, we can do all things through Christ the vine who gives us strength. And then he goes on to say in Matthew's gospel, Jesus makes one additional I am statement to the sheep. Uh, he says, uh, who he also affectionately calls his little children. Uh, that I am statement is also an invitation. He says, come to me all who are weary and laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he goes on to say, these are all true about Jesus. So really thankful for Scott Sauls and his ministry, his writing, his blogs, his books, everything. Uh, this is going to be a powerful sermon series for his people. But like you said, I've preached through the I am statements of Jesus as well. And uh, it's always so illuminating and go, oh, my gosh, this is who Jesus is. I would encourage people out there to contemplate and kind of sit in uh, the book of John and the seven I am statements of Jesus. Well, and, and this is kind of inside baseball, but this is an article that you chose. You put it in our Google Doc. And so this being our our first show back in the new year. Why don't you take just 30 seconds and like cast vision for this next year, maybe in light a little bit of what we just read? Yeah, I think for a lot of us, uh, we go into 2021 feeling a lot of fear, feeling a lot of uncertainty, because just because the calendar changed, COVID didn't go away. You know, I'm still have to put a mask on on January 1 or these types of I couldn't go to a restaurant. I think a lot of us still feel that anxiety, that angst about uh, our health or the health of our loved ones, about jobs, about any, all sorts of things. We still feel that. And I think that we are reminded by these words of Saul's, but more so by the words of Jesus in the book of John, that Jesus is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. Like he's still who he said he is. And we can hold on to these truths about him, these autobiographical statements, if you will. Uh, and there find not, uh, we can find hope. We can find our security. We can find our joy. We can kind of anchor ourselves again in who Jesus is. Yeah, I was pretty surprised. I made a post on January 1. And I said, God was with us in 2020. He'll be with us in 2021. We can rest in that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, maybe that was, I thought it would just be encouraging to a handful of people and people really resonated with that. So hopefully at the very least, uh, you find some hope in that. You find some strength in that. And we have a long way to go and there's a lot that we can't see. 
But like you were saying, Brad, at the very least, uh, God does promise, right? He never leaves mm-hmm. us, never forsakes us. He's as with us now as he was a year ago, five years ago. And uh, at the very, very least, I think we can learn to rest in that. Well, and with that, our first show of 2021 is in the books. But we are back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. I hope you'll join us. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Hope for your life.